Well, we move into, uh, if you're following, uh, we're on page 7 of the note uh, packet, um, verse 13, which really, the theme is suffering, and it's pretty much the rest of the book. Now, let's just remind ourselves a couple of, uh, uh, for a couple of moments, Peter's writing this, obviously, it's in the 60s, and he's, uh, AD 60s, and he's writing to a persecuted church in what, Today, you and I would call Eastern Turkey. And remember, the very verse, first verse of, of, the, of the letter, 1-1, uh, tells us those areas, Cappadocia and all that. Now, the reason I say that is just to remind you, in this area, the church was being persecuted. Um, and that is a theme that as you get further into the uh, letters of, of the New Testament as they get later into the 60s, late 60s, and even into the 90s with John's writings, uh, the Apostle John's writings, like 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, even the book of Revelation. Uh, suffering is a major theme. Persecution is a major theme. Increasing martyrdom is a major theme. And that will grow into the next 200 years of the church. Because as the church spreads, and it, it, it literally explodes across the Mediterranean world, the Roman Empire starts to respond to that, both localized governors of the different provinces and eventually the emperor, where systematic, widespread, intentional persecution and killing of Christians is the norm. We're not there yet in terms of the history, but what I think the Holy Spirit was doing in motivating Peter to write what he writes is to prepare believers for that. And um, I don't know how else to say this. It's going to sound almost mean-spirited. I don't want it to sound that way. But in the United States of America today, we are are atypical in terms of Christians almost everywhere else in the world. You know what I mean? Where being a Christian in almost any other part of the world, including Western Europe today, you're instantly, you're instantly ostracized. And if it's, you know, uh, Muslim regimes or communist regimes or totalitarian regimes, uh, there is persecution and often martyrdom. And it's just, you get outside of North America is where you really start to see that in, in, in some major areas. And so chapters like this are going to have a very different meaning for them than it does for you and me. Because when we think of suffering and persecution, correctly so, we think of tragedies and disease and accidents and things like that, and maybe people not speaking to us because we're a Christian. But in so many other parts of the world, what, what, when they read something like this, they're not only thinking of sickness and disease and accidents, but they're thinking of the government persecuting them, the government killing them, the government throwing them in prison for long periods of time, the government torturing them. Um, And I mean, just I'm saying all that because Christians in different parts of the world today reading a passage like we're going to begin uh, studying in in, in verse uh, 13 and following um, has a much deeper meaning to them. Um, And I think that's, we kind of have to keep that in mind. Suffering Suffering, and again, this is going to sound almost uh, unkind, but suffering is the norm in so much of life. And suffering outside of a, an affluent, secure, prosperous country like ours, that's not the norm for us. We're, we're aghast when we have to suffer for something. 
because that's not the norm of our life. And our affluence has helped us to be able to um, assume that about life. Whereas throughout the last 2,000 years of the history of the church in most areas and in pockets today in the world, the kind of resistance and opposition, harshness and literal, literally life-threatening persecution is more the norm. So I'm just saying all that because what Peter is saying would have would resonate powerfully to so many parts of people in parts of the world today. It's not quite the same here. It's not quite the same here because our affluence has bought a security that in many ways is a false security. Woody. Um, it would help me understand some <clears throat> of the information in this chapter if I knew. Uh, uh, what, I, I don't know, the, the year, how many years after Noah, for instance, the flood, mm-hmm. was this written? Well, my goodness. Um, the, the, they make reference to that. Yes, he does. He does. And he's doing some parallel to the things that he's seeing when Peter's writing to the days of Noah. Well, that would put from where Peter is uh, writing AD 60s, early AD 60s, uh, back to Noah, is at least 4,500 years, probably more than that. Yeah, I mean, it's a little more difficult. It depends on how you look at some other things in those early chapters of Genesis. But it's thousands of years, okay. at least four. Okay. Yeah. All right. uh, it could be more than that. So, But you're right, uh, and, and, and it was insightful of you, because he does draw a parallel in the next section there that begins in verse 18 between what he's seeing at the time he's writing and what was going on in Noah's day. That's right. Jim, uh, you know, you're quite a history buff, and, uh, you know, and I'm thinking globally, not just domestic U.S. Um, he, you know, and I think of that scripture, he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a battle of good and evil uh, going on all the time globally. How is it that some of these countries got to that point where uh, the forces of, of Satan have moved forward and the, and the force of the testimony of Christians has lessened. How was how that spiritual territory lost? If, if you have a comment on that, that would be appreciated. And then, if that scripture is true, and I believe it is, um, how, isn't it important? I mean, well, how do we keep that from happening, domestic USA, and our area of the world? Well, well, you're asking such an enormous question Globally, I mean, it's a huge question because each each era of, of history, as well as each geographical location in the world and its history, you would answer that a little differently. I'll give you one or two examples. For example, in in Haiti, in Dominican Republic, that has the historical reason for that. They've always been deeply, deeply into the occult, 
And so, you know, you go down there and talk to people about Satan, and you know, yeah, we absolutely believe it. That's why we worship and do what we do. Try to thwart Satan and his evil, you know. Uh, whereas you come to the United States, there's a, to, to, in many circles, to talk about Satan, and there's really an evil cosmic battle going on between that's oh, That's such silly, stupid stuff. Nobody believes that anymore. And that's because of our intellectual sophistication and our affluence. And uh, you go to other other parts of the world, each each area. C.S. Lewis in his magnificent little book called Screwtape Letters, what he does there, it's an allegory, but what he does there is he, he shrewdly, and I believe very insightfully, helps us to see that Satan studies an area. Uh, you know, he's sort of making that up, but I don't think that's beyond the probability of exactly what happens. Studies an area, studies people, sees their weakness, sees their vulnerabilities, and that's where he attacks. That's where he gets his 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 beachhead and gains enormous consult. If those who are believers uh, and and committed to the Lord are not sensitive to that, always remembering the verse you quoted from First John that He that is in you, i.e., the Holy Spirit, is greater than He that is in the world, i.e., Satan. Then we. We, we forget that and that we have all the resources and all the power because of the resurrected Christ and his spirit that indwells us to counter those forces of evil, whatever they might be. Uh, the greatest challenge right now, I think, in American civilization is, is our affluence and our complacency and our false sense of security. We let our guard... Yeah, another word for that. Yeah, and that that grants us, and because there's, it's not that that's evil. I mean, to to, to have affluence by its name is not evil. I mean, all through the Bible, you you see evidence of God choosing to bless people with material blessings. But it's that material blessing if you're not always focused, which we will be tomorrow. I hope on thanking God and praising God that he's trusted us with these resources, which is the right biblical way to look at it. He's trusted us with these resources. And if we are not living in conscious dependence on him and, and always seeking his guidance and wisdom on how we're going to use those resources, we will drift into a false security where we let our guard down and, and you know... And, I mean, it just... It, it's... I don't know how to answer your question. So the answer, to, which I think is really what you're looking for, is it is just that daily, it is that daily reminder of who we are in Christ and the necessity of us walking by faith and dependence on him, regardless of our socioeconomic status, regardless of where we live, um, and I mean anywhere in the world, as as well as just a constant reminder that we are in a battle. And that's that's something again that is hard sometimes in America to remember that that we are in a battle, and it isn't the culture war of politics. It's a battle for our heart, soul, mind, and, and, and you know everything about us, and uh, and that's that's something we have to be very very careful about. I mean, I see it uh, with my children. You know, my my parents are. are my dad's gone now. My mom's not doing very well at all, and so their you know their generation's almost over. But that was the generation you know that went through very difficult times: the Depression, World War II, 
And there was always that mindset of, oh my goodness, how blessed we are. My dad used to say that all the time. When I know how I grew up and what my dad had and what I have, and he said, it is, it's, it's night and day. And I am so thankful to the Lord that we are not, I mean, okay, whereas my generation, you know, we sort of lose that. Now my kids, oh my goodness. They've never known want. They've never known difficult time. Not that, I mean, I'm not wealthy, but just living in the United States and just no, no sense of suffering and struggling cannot relate to poor. No, it, it, yeah, and and that's it. And then, therefore, it's just, you know, it's almost like we deserve this. Yeah. You know, it's an entitlement mentality in the United States. It's not just for the poor that are on welfare. It's everybody. Everybody has that entitlement mentality. That I'm owed this. <laughs> yeah, I'm owed this, whatever, whatever it is, you know. A, a natural disaster occurs, what's the very first thing that everybody asks? Where is the United States government in this? I'm not saying that's not something we should. I mean, I think we should do that, but it's just it's just immediately. Well, where's the government? You know. Whereas in my dad's generation, nobody even asked that question. The dust bowl's occurring, nobody's asking where's the United States government. Because the United States government wasn't involved in anything like that yet. And I'm not saying that it shouldn't get involved. But it's just that kind of, you know, I just, I'm owed this. This is just, I, I deserve this. It's my right to have this. You know? <laughs> and that's, uh, that, that's probably not very healthy. It's certainly not healthy for a nation. And it's certainly not healthy for a spiritual life. We are owed nothing. But God offers us everything in Christ. And that's, uh, anyway, wow, what a long answer. Can we get to the text now? Mm-hmm. That'd be all right. Yeah, Verse 13. Now, I want to read a couple of these verses and then I, and trying to get the, the unit um, 13 through 17. Now, there, who is there to harm you if you are zealous? Zeal, you know, it's a wonderful word for what is good. But even. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Now, remember the context. These are people who are being persecuted for the faith. And that's how you should understand. They're reading that sentence. That's how they're reading that sentence. Have no fear of them. Who? Well, the people who are persecuting you. Nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your, um, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if you should be God's will, than for doing evil. Okay, I'll stop there. Now, just you make a couple of observations about this. These, these are absolutely astonishing charges, uh, commands, if you will, but charges to us. It's, it's, why are you suffering? Well, he says, if you're doing evil things, <laughs> don't be surprised. But if you're suffering for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Well, what does that mean, suffering for righteousness' sake? Well, for the gospel, 
for Christ, standing for him and what he represents, it's almost like he's saying, when you do that, expect to suffer. Expect to be persecuted. Expect people are going to push back. Accept resist. Expect resistance. Expect slander. Expect people to revile you. They're all the words he uses. And so what he's trying to, and this is what I find so deeply profound, he is positing a completely counterintuitive way to respond. Do you know what I mean by counterintuitive? In other words, you, you, you're, you're slandered or somebody's reviling you or somebody's persecuting you. Immediately we're defensive. Immediately we take out our gun. You know, using some metaphors here, but immediately that's how we respond. And Peter's saying, I don't want you to think of that as your initial response. Because he says, um, first of all, don't fear them. Don't be troubled. But in your heart, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Isn't it interesting? That's where he starts. As you're experiencing the pushback, the ostracism, and the persecution, and the difficulties of living in a fallen world, and you're representing righteousness, don't expect people to say, Oh, thank you, brother, come on in! (laughs) It's not going to be that way, probably. So don't be afraid of them. Don't be troubled. Instead, start with your heart, the center of our will, the center of our intentionality. What is that? To honor Christ the Lord as holy. To honor Christ the Lord as holy. To honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's our first concern. And uh, that's what I mean. Counterintuitive, that's not the first thing we think about. And then he gives what I find one of the more remarkable charges. And uh, it's it's a great verse. Always... How do I honor Christ the Lord as holy? How do I do that? It's in my heart. I've made a decision of my will to do that. Now, what's that going to look like? That's what the next clause is all about. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. You're honoring Christ the Lord. How do I honor Christ the Lord? By always being ready How do I treat Christ as holy? I'm not going to write the word always down, but always means that's to be the norm. This isn't the exception, this is the norm always being prepared to make a defense. The the term that's translated make a defense is in Greek apologia. That's the Greek term. So make a defense in English is in Greek apologia. No, that's a G. It doesn't look like that, does it? Have you ever heard of apologetics? See, apology or apologia isn't, I'm sorry for what I just did. I'm offering you an apology. I shouldn't have done it. That's not what it means here. 
uh, apologia in Greek means to make a defense. It's an apology, an apologetic. Now, now, isn't that isn't that intriguing that that Peter chooses to use that term? Always be prepared to make a defense, to give an apologetic for why you're acting the way you're acting, why you're responding the way you're responding. Because when you respond in a way to persecution, difficulty, people pushing back, ostracizing, in a way that always honors Christ the Lord, be ready to explain, to make an offense of why you're doing this. Why are you living this way? And notice how he puts it. A reason for the hope that's in you. So the apology, the apologia, the the defense, the apologetic, is to explain why the hope that you have is affecting how you live. Now, I'm just, I'm kind of, Taking this a little slow because I want this to sink in. This, this is an absolutely counterintuitive, uh, radical, unexpected way of putting this. Because as Americans, we would say, "Well, I'm going to exercise my Second Amendment right and take out my pistol." I, this is now horribly cynical, I, and I'm not saying that isn't necessary. Self-defense is something that's important. It's taught in scriptures, but he's saying when. When, when you are being persecuted, when you're suffering for righteousness' sake, when you're making a stand for Christ, when you, when, 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 when you are putting your life on the line because of Jesus, in your hearts, honor the Lord by explaining to people why you're doing it. Give an apologetic for the hope that's in you. Not we. I want to take that apart, but John, you had a question. Translation I have says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. So that helps me a little bit, a response, you know, as to uh, who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Um, so in a sense, it's a defense, but it's also an answer or a response, would you say? Yes, it is an answer, but it, it's... I, I would not be terribly pleased with that translation. And the reason, now, oh, I didn't mean to, that sounds critical. I didn't mean it to sound critical, but it's, it, you're not getting the full force of what he's really saying there. It's more than just an answer. I, that's why I like, I'd like to even use the word an apologetic, because an apologetic means you can, you can really explain some of the doctrinal, theological, reasons that are in back of why you're acting the way you're acting, more specifically, why you're responding the way you're responding. And part of this is going to be developed in the next paragraph where the Lord, where, where excuse me, uh, Peter brings in Jesus and his suffering and so on. How did he respond and so on? But in other words, the key word there, in my view, and, and the way I'm understanding this verse, is hope. Hope. So yes, hope. This is more of a, I don't know whether it's a comment or an observation, but when you make this defense, it's not so much done out of the expectation that you might 
change the persecution you're under as it is to reinforce kind of your personal convictions or my, I mean, what's the outcome of doing this, I guess, is the question. Well, that if you go back to the introduction of this verse, that the Lord might be honored through what you're doing. I mean, in a, in a way, that is the outcome. The key outcome is that the Lord is going to be honored and glorified by what I'm doing and what I'm saying. So that's kind of the really, really big, because <laughs> everything we do are, is to be done to the honor and glory of the Lord. But I, I do think, though, Jim, that an apologetic for why we uh, react the way we react, why we live the way we live, is to give the Holy Spirit the seed, the opportunity to use this in other people's lives to bring them to Christ. Now, I'm putting it the way I think other parts of the New Testament would put us. We don't change people. The Spirit changes people. But he uses our lives, our actions, our words as seedbeds in people's lives to allow the Spirit to work in, in, in a transformational way, to bring them to the Savior. That was, that was typified last week in a fellow who was in a road rage Situation. What he was telling us last week. Mm -hmm. and, and he fouled this fellow in the parking lot. And the guy gets out and he's ready to go at it. And he says, Are you okay? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and that just that totally diffused the guy. Mm. And then let him, let him on to be led to Christ. Mm. They went, I think he told us they went for a cup of coffee. And the guy said, so My wife just left me. Yeah. I mean, this disastrous situation he was in and that is I, I have thought about that quite a bit this week just a, a, the extraordinary counter use that word again that we were using a minute ago get the counterintuitive way to respond to road rage I mean it's just it, it was so unnatural <laughs> and what that man did uh, uh, that he was telling us about he in effect um, he honored Christ the Lord as holy and was prepared to make a defense in other words, he started to, I mean, I don't know all they said over coffee, but he started to explain why he said, are you okay? Yeah. Which would have shocked the pants off of anybody in a road rage situation, you know, <laughs> as we, we've seen so often. So it's, it's to try to, and that was a good illustration, but it's try to put ourselves in very specific situations where what is that going to look like for me in my life to give an apologetic, a defense, a, uh, if, if you want to sit down and talk about it, a detailed explanation because of explaining the reason I'm doing these things and why I'm reacting the way I'm reacting. And um, it's just, for Peter, for Peter, he saw that in his Savior. He saw Jesus in the three years he was with him respond in unnatural, counterintuitive, not expected, not normal uh, uh, situations. Um, and it's, it's that kind of um, language that Peter is using to get us to really think about this. But would you note one, I want to talk more about this term, hope. Because you're giving an apologetic, you're, you're willing to make a defense which implies some detail, for what? 
for the hope that's in you. What does that mean? When you read that, I mean, that word hope is a very, very, very important biblical term. It's a very important biblical term. So what what does hope? Let's talk about that term. John, were you going to say oh, something? I, I don't want to go off on a bunny trail, but yep. when you study apologetics in seminary, mm-hmm. what what are you studying? What what's the thrust of it? Well, it has lots of it has lots of segments to it. An okay. apologetic uh, an apologetics as a discipline of, 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 of a curriculum can involve the the reasons for can you give reasons for the existence of God like the cosmological argument, the ontological argument, the moral argument. If you're not familiar with it, don't worry about it. But that's an apologetic. Can I make a logical, reasonable defense for the existence of God outside of using the word of God? Another area of apologetics is to be able to defend the righteousness and justice of God. Uh, you know, and the goodness of God, because I look at my world and I say, well, I'm not sure you tell me God's good. I don't see a lot of evidence of that. I see Syria, I see storms, etc. And that's kind of you're you're making yeah, it. That's you're making it different than what the way we're using it. Well, yeah, I mean that's it's the same word, yeah. but the apologetic is to make a defense for the hope. So, but hope, hope implies a lot of things. So let's talk about that. You don't want to talk about it? Okay. <laughs> what, I mean, what is hope? What kind of a word? And this sounds silly, but I think it's the right way to start to put What kind of a word is hope? It's I mean, it's positive, optimistic, isn't it? Optimistic. It's, not, it's not negative. To have hope, that, that's to say something positive about someone's outlook. Mm-hmm. So, it's a future. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost always associated with the future. I have hope for the future. I have a reason to get up tomorrow morning. It could also be a noun. It can be, yeah, very much so. So, it's, I mean... It's the basis of my faith, yes. Oh, okay. Uh, let's talk. What's the content of your hope? God. Now, getting to, like, the noun. What's the content of hope? Do you understand what I mean by that? When you say, I have hope, What's the content of that as a, as a, as a serious Christian? It's the absolute certainty that God is sovereign. Okay. His it, plan is going to be carried out. I have hope is to have a God-centered, God-focused perspective. Let's put it as God-focused. And because of Fred, you were, you were saying something? It's, it's the, the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. All right, and it's, it's, it's a hope based on what God has accomplished in Christ. Outside of us. Yeah, outside of And the key to that, the key to that is really the resurrection. I mean, his death and his burial is central because that's the sacrifice. But the resurrection is the tactile, tangible evidence that the Father accepted the sacrifice and... He paid the penalty and therefore brought him back to life because death no longer has authority over him. Death's the penalty for sin. Jesus paid the penalty. Now death's no longer our enemy. That's how Paul puts it. But shouldn't we also have 
forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. Well, yeah, and it's I mean, that's the whole. Thing. That, that's what I mean. It's all that He accomplished. But because of the resurrection, we have, and that's Woody and I had this all planned out. He was going to say that. That's right. But because of that, we have because of the resurrection, we have the certainty of the promise of eternal life. And the hope is not just a wish; it's a no. reality of what is in fact. That's right. Good. That's really good. A synonym for hope is not a wish. Our life on earth That's not a synonym. Our life on earth here is a short time, a short part of our life, because right. we're going to be with Jesus Christ. Right. In the right. So hope, so hope as, as content, and I hope you're following how I'm, I'm using these terms. So the content of hope is very doctrinal. Isn't it? I mean, it's 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 a it's a it's a it's a heart of our Christian faith. It's our doctrine. It's it's about God and His sovereignty and His purpose and His redemptive plan. It's about Jesus and what He historically did in His death, burial, and most importantly, the resurrection, because He's still not in the grave. He has come back to life. He's ruling at the right hand of the Father and so on. And then, because of the resurrection, is that promise. Of eternal life, but with that, they are related, but with that is that Jesus has promised to come back for me. John 14, I'm going back to the Father, preparing a place for you, and I will come back for you. And where I am, you will be with me forever. That fantastic promise. So all of that is wrapped around this, an apologetic for the reason I have hope. Now you're getting to it. An apologetic for the reason I have hope. Because so often, I had a, a pastor years ago when I was president doing some work in North Omaha. He said to me, you know, Jim, people cannot live without hope. And so many of my people in North Omaha have no hope that they're ever going to get out of the cycle they're in. Third generation families you know, on welfare, third-generation single-parent families. They have no hope that they're ever going to be able to get out of this. They don't know what their kids are going to become. And he was talking, what came up with that discussion was so many of the kids get into gangs and get in, because there's, there's no other, now that's not exactly true, but they see it as there's just no other avenue for me, so I might as well just get into a gang. It's like a family, because if the family doesn't exist, the gang is like a family. Sense of belonging, sense of purpose, sense of caring. Yeah, and I mean, it's just all of that stuff. So I I used to use that as an illustration, but we, and that's what he was trying to do in his church, to give, especially these young men, a reason that your only hope is not a gang. Your hope is in Christ. Your true father figure is the heavenly father, not the head of the gang. And it's just, you know, you and I, with our children, at least I'm sure we all basically, with our children, we never faced that. I mean, I never, ever had my kids come home and say, Dad, I'm really thinking about getting involved in a gang. You know, never. never, We never had that discussion. Praise be to God. But I say that because when Peter is saying this, it's, if you're standing for righteousness and you're seeking to honor the Lord, always be ready to give an apologetic 
for the reason you have hope. You see, that puts it, that's so broad you can fit that into any situation, can't yeah, you? You believe you have hope. Yeah, I mean, because you believe, because of your faith and all this content that we messily listed up there, uh, we can say, this is why I have hope. And it's, it's, the kind of, it's the kind of demeanor in how we approach life. And then please don't miss how he speaks of doing this. Yet, and that's an adversative, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's how the ESV translates those two words. So not an arrogance. I have hope, ha, 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 you don't. You know, I can't imagine doing that, but maybe I can't imagine some people doing that. But, but it's it's it, there's that sensitivity, there's that compassion, there's that empathy, and so Peter just says, when you do it, do it with gentleness and with respect. And respect, that's a wonderful way to translate that. Respect, an awareness of, a confidence in, and an understanding of that dignity and and worthiness of that person. You're not looking down on them. You know, I've made it. Would you please get your act together? That's not gentleness and respect. And so this is a, this is a quality again that I think Peter saw in his Savior as he was with him for three years. You know, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, the, the, the Zacchaeus. I mean, all of those... Jesus did that because he was God in the flesh, but that incredible ability to sense exactly where a person is and exactly what needed to be said and exactly how to show it. And that's that's what Peter is appealing for here. It seems to me that, I'm not sure I'm using the right word, but the level of sophistication of hope kind of changes in the Christian experience. When I first mm. gave my life to the Lord, I mean, I was absolutely certain that my sins were forgiven mm. and I was headed toward heaven. Mm. But it wasn't as fully informed. Mm. You know, and as life passed, and I mean, I've had some really challenging things happen in my mm. life, and I found the Lord faithful in all of those. Mm. And as I've studied, my understanding mm. of some of the things you put up there has grown. So mm. um, I don't know what I'm saying. I guess hope, the definition of hope kind of shifts a little mm. bit depending upon. No, I think that's right. Spiritual maturity, or I don't know if that's right. No, I, I think both chronological maturity, but also spiritual maturity. No, absolutely right. I like to put it the depth of your understanding of hope. Really, I mean, you really do. It's a deep word. It's a very important word in Scripture. It's a very important word. You know, you you remember that little trilogy of words in First Corinthians thirteen: faith, hope, and love. You know that those three are knit together. In, in the spiritual dynamic of the believer. Faith, hope, and love. Faith is not only the act of faith, we put our faith in Jesus Christ, but our walk by faith, which produces and gives us the hope, which then enables us to love. I mean, those, they're inextricably linked in the believer's life. And each one of those, faith, hope, and love, each one of those terms has tremendous depth to it. And I think Jim's spot on. The, the longer we walk with the Lord through all of the aspects of life, the deeper the meaning and understanding of those three words becomes in our life. Uh, I think I can relate to that. It's uh, where uh, Jim was blessed with an immediate feeling of forgiveness when he gave his life to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And 
and I have struggled with forgiving myself, mm. you know, mm-hmm. and it's been a process mm-hmm. of getting there, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, that's, I'm not saying I'm mature. <laughs> well, no, but, but no, I'm but it's an there. illustration. No, that's, Woody, that's exactly the right, that's exactly that's the right. The burning bush, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, mm-hmm. I have to study it and read it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's you're, it's the depths of understanding, understanding the depths of what forgiveness really is. I mean, it, it is a, it's another very important word of our faith. And uh, I think the longer we're w- walking with the Lord, the more we really understand the depths of the Lord's forgiveness of us, our sins and, and all of that. And therefore, it gives us hope. See, all of this, all of this meaning, all these, important doctrinal issues and things we've been talking about are what produces the depths of, of hope in our lives, which hope allows you, let me rephrase that, hope enables you to endure a great deal. I mean, when my father, when he was dying, that was what my dad, I just want to go home. That's a statement of hope, isn't it? I mean, I just want to go home. And it's a statement of hope. His suffering and all that he went through those last months of his life are over now because what he believed has come to fruition. And so it's just all of this Peter is, is what Peter is saying to us, saying to the suffering church of the, of the 8060s in eastern Turkey, as we would say it today, and to every generation of every believer all over the world in the specific circumstances and situations you find yourself in, this is, um, this is how the Lord, in an honoring way, wants us to respond to adversity. To give an apologetic for the reason we have hope. And as we do it, do it with gentleness, do it with respect. Fred. You know, if we, if we realize that how lonely people are, mm. and how big a difference we can simply make by just simply showing an act of kindness to anybody in a store uh, there's nobody breaking down their door to be friendly <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and we carry a hope like you say that's within us and we can have an impact on a person's life just not because because of us, but because he who is in us. Yeah. And they yeah. will notice that. Exactly. And they will... Um, exactly. I mean, they'll take note of that. Um, and I think we have to be patient with those people, too, and, and really love them. Mm. I mean, care about and, Yeah. And, and show it in a lot of different ways, but they, they will take notice, absolutely. Do we care? Yeah. Um, That's right. That's kind of the bottom line, where they will spend eternity. And I think that puts us out of the picture, and we become a carrier of a message Mm. of Christ, who is our hope, it's not in us. It's not in our flesh. Because we're not worthy, and that's why he went across to die for us. And a man say, you know, it's taken me 20 years 
to get a better understanding of John 3.16. Mm. No kidding. And, wow. and that was mm. late last week. Mm. And um, you just think, you didn't, you didn't get that. <laughs> <laughs> and he's beginning to get his, mm. his head around it. Mm. He said, and it's making a difference mm. in his life. So we can't defeat Satan, but he who is in us, the power of the Holy Spirit, can. Mm -hmm. He is more powerful than anything, including the powers of Satan. Absolutely. That's why I, uh, not to keep restating the same thing over and over again, but that's why this word hope is so important. Even in 2017, there's so many people really have no hope. They really don't. They do not have hope for the future. Even here in America. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And in some ways, it's even more so, it's even more so in, in America because we are so tied to the material aspects of just what it means to live that we we just cannot possibly imagine and it's just i'm never i never have enough i'm never secure enough you know i was uh this was one of those things that just caught me so off guard but it was just another illustration of you never know how what you say or do is going to impact somebody uh last thursday it was my birthday and peggy and i went out for dinner on thursday night we went to charleston's there at 72nd well anyway and uh, i don't uh, Peggy doesn't eat because of her autoimmune disease, so I just got a bowl of soup and a sandwich. And the guy gave me the bill, and he didn't charge me for the soup. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I called him over, and I said, you know, uh, I think his name was John. You know, they have a little plaque. And I said, John, you didn't charge me for the soup. He said, what? You're telling me? Yeah. He said, nobody does that. That's exactly what he said. Nobody does that. And I looked at him and I said, oh, well, I, one, I'm surprised to hear that. But two, Sorry. I mean, for me, for me, I just, you know, John, you gave me a bowl of soup and you need to make sure you charge me for it. And he just said, he said, nobody does that. And then he, you know, a couple of minutes later, he brought the revised bill back. And, and he said, you know, thank you so much for telling me this. Because, because nobody does that. You know, and in that, at one level, I mean, you know, I, you know, I didn't give him a full-blown explanation of the gospel at that moment, but it was just, isn't that sad that this young 20-year-old, I, I guess he was a college student, I, I'm not sure, he certainly uh, was doing that part-time, but he was so shocked about somebody being honest and, and somebody of integrity, which isn't, I mean, I don't mean to vaunt elevate myself it's just you all probably done the same thing it was just such a surprise this guy was so shocked by this and you know and peggy just said you know honey isn't it it's just another piece of evidence always do what is the right thing to do and see how god can use that in somebody's life and i was just one of those pleasant reminders it really matters how we live our lives it really matters you never know what the Lord is going to do in a person's life. That's kind of what Peter's getting at here. And so if I can just conclude with verse 16, again, remembering everything before that, but having a good conscience, remember that's 
conscience in the New Testament. It's used 31 times in the New Testament. It is that deep-seated conviction to do what is right. Now, for the believer, conscience has to be informed by Scripture, by the Holy Spirit. But he's saying, having a good conscience, having that deep inner conviction, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You have that deep conviction so that this is how you will respond so that when you're slandered, the people who are doing that are going to be put to shame. Because how you respond will shame them. What do you mean, how you respond? Back to verse 15 that we just talked about. It matters how we respond. And I have been thinking about that because of last Thursday night um, and other things that have happened. I've been thinking of how I sometimes reflect the Lord when I go to Starbucks after I go to the fitness center each morning, I go to Starbucks, get a copy of the newspaper, and get a cup of coffee. And I'm sweaty, and all I want to do is go home, get a shower. And I, I can be very quick. And I just want to get in here and get out. Instead of, you know, the, the, like yesterday, the girl, I mean, it's cold, I'm freezing, but I was sweating, you know, what it was like yesterday. She said, well, how's your morning going? And I just, <laughs> all I wanted to do it. I don't want to talk about this. And, and you know, I thought, well... I said, well, I just came from the fitness center, and I'm, I'm overheated, but it's so cold out. I said, I'm really looking forward to going home getting a hot shower. But I said, thanks for asking. Have a real good day. You know, all I wanted her to do was take my money and let me get out of the building. You know what I mean? And I said, no. Always be ready to give. And that's those kind of circumstances. You never know, ever. That's why my wife constantly says to me, I think I've told you this before, Jim, you got to smile. Jim, smile more. Smile, honey. When you're up there preaching this morning, smile. <laughs> I'm, I'm, the reason is because she knows me. She's been married to me for 48 and a half years. But I'm a very intense person. I, I am very intense. And sometimes that intensity just trumps everything else I'm doing. I guess we shouldn't use Trump anymore, should we? But it overcomes everything else I'm doing. So the conclusion is it is better for suffer doing for doing good if that should be God's will. In other words, if that's what God wants for your life. He may not want that, but if that's what God wants, it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It's almost like he's saying, if you're going to suffer, make sure it's for good. And remember, the, the suffering doesn't have to do with getting cancer. It's, this is in the context of people being slandered reviled and persecuted. That's what he's talking about here. And so it's, you know, if the government arrests you for a deserved crime, that's not suffering. That's not persecution. That's justice. <laughs> but if the government arrests you for preaching about Christ, or like in North Korea setting up a church or something like that, that's suffering for righteousness. That's all he's saying. It's almost like he's saying, make sure if you're being persecuted, you're being persecuted for the right thing. Not for running a red light. I hope you follow what 
what I'm saying in these, these uh, 21st century examples. So this is a, well, it's 10 of, I guess I better quit. This is a very powerful section. This is one, actually, this is one of my favorite sections in the New Testament. Because one, I find it extremely convicting. But two, I love verse 15. I, I just love that verse. To always be ready to give an offense, defense of your hope which is such a key word for people. All right? Well, now listen, tomorrow I order you to have a good Thanksgiving. And I hope when you sit down with your meal, however you do that in your traditions and so on, that you'll do what we've tried to do faithfully, just take time to go around the table and thank the Lord for the blessings of the previous year. Because despite all of the unique circumstances we have, we are blessed people because of Christ. And so many other things, the material blessings, the wonderful blessings that the Lord has showered upon us. So we have a lot to be thankful for. Lord, thank you for our time this morning. Um, because of the holidays, a little bit smaller group than usual, but that's good. No matter how many men show up, it's always good to spend time in the Word of God. So bless these men and their um, responsibilities and all the activities of their lives. May their day tomorrow with family or friends, however they celebrate Thanksgiving, just be very special. Lord, I'm very thankful we still live in a country with all of its problems and challenges and things that can disturb us quite, quite, uh, quite significantly. We still live in a nation where there is a national day of thanksgiving set aside. So tomorrow when we sit down with our, our family, our friends or whatever, Lord, may we be very, very, um, very specific and, and very intentional in taking a few moments to just thank you. Thank you for the blessings that we have. Thank you that we live in a country like this, despite its challenges, that we have the freedoms we have, to thank the Lord for our children, but most of all, to thank you for the Lord Jesus. Because of what he did for us, we all are free from the sin and the bondage to sin, free to serve you. And as we grow and learn together, we want to represent you well. So help us to do that. Again, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.